You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, David. Hello, Will. And hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 109 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today, we are discussing hyenas. Back to carnivora with the weird ones. So, oh, they're so weird and cool. Very cool. It's Hyenas are one of those groups where just about everything they do is hardcore, and it's great. And they're a little bit off. You mm-hmm. know, so so many of carnivora, especially the big ones, fit nicely. They're either dogs or cats or yep, bears. Yep, yep. And then there's hyenas. Which are kind of doing their own thing in a lot of weird ways. So yeah, we're going to discuss hyenas, both the modern and the extinct. Talk about what is a hyena, what makes a hyena. Uh, There's only four today, so we'll do a little in-depth dive into the four that we have on the planet now. And then we'll talk a bit about what have hyenas been, where have they been found, what's the variety that used to exist, because they used to be much more diverse. We have a very small sample compared to what has been. I'm excited to learn about hyenas because I don't know a ton about them, but I've always, every time I've seen a hyena bone, I've been very impressed. Yes. No, that's where I started out taking notes for this is I I was like, yeah, hyenas. And then I got into it and was like, oh, hyenas. Yeah. (laughs) So hyena skulls I'm quite rather familiar with and they're very impressive. Yes. So I'm, I'm excited to learn about the rest of the animal. So we will discuss that. But as usual, before we get into the episode the reason we're discussing this is because it was requested by who we got requests for hyenas and some hyena like animals from Bryn the vampire jonathan finn lydia thomas and zabby thanks everybody yeah good idea yes no good topic also before we get into the episode proper we have some quick announcements nowadays our podcast is fully funded by our patreon and the patrons thereon. And if you sign up at a certain level, we like to shout your name out to thank you for supporting us. Do a shout. Buddy, welcome to our Patreon. Thanks for the support. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to all of our patrons. If you're not already a patron, or if you are and have missed the memo, patrons get all sorts of goodies. Bonus recordings, Mm -hmm. director's notes, and stuff like shout outs. And patron questions, of which there will be one. Before the end of this episode. Absolutely. And our only other announcement is that we are fast approaching the end of this month. True. And at the end of this month, there's a movie coming out. A movie that uh, follows up some movies we've talked about in the past. Yes, a a small indie film known as Godzilla vs. Kong. So we did a whole Silver Screen Science series about Godzilla and King Kong. Yep. So naturally, we've had our ears on this development. Yeah, we can't really ignore it. So... We will be doing something for this film. We will be talking about it. It's not out yet. We haven't seen it, so we can't tell you what we'll be doing. Right. We don't know if this is going to be worth a whole hour-long silver screen science discussion, or if it'll be a quicker note, or what. (laughs) It may be the Godzilla and Kong series updated. Right. (laughs) But one way or another, keep your ears out for a little bonus silver screen science thing. We will be addressing this film sometime coming up soon. Absolutely. And with that, we wrap up our announcements and break into the news. News time. Every episode, we like to collect a couple pieces of science news from the past couple weeks. 
paleo news, evolution news, earth history stuff, things particularly poignant for our podcast. And we like to share them with you all to keep all of us up to date and to keep us up to date. David, what do you got? How about some old lampreys? Cool. Old lampreys that tell us a bit about vertebrate evolution and not the answer that we may have been expecting. All right. This is research by Tetsuto Miyashita et al. in the journal Nature, and we'll link to an article in The Conversation written by one of the authors, Robert Guess. Lampreys are a group of jawless fish. We have them around today. Mm -hmm. Together with hagfish, they are the only jawless fish and thus represent a basal branch of vertebrates, the most basal branch of vertebrates. Yes. The earliest branching off from the rest of the bony animals. So paleontologists often look to them for clues as to the earliest days of vertebrates. Might these fish clue us into what early vertebrates may have been like? Lampreys today are eel-like, no jaws, but they've got these toothy sucker mouths. Yeah, it's horrifying. That they'll latch onto fish and suck their blood. Their larvae do not look quite like that. Uh, like a lot of fish, their larvae live a different lifestyle. The lamprey larvae are called amocetes. They are little worm-like creatures. They are blind, mm -hmm. right? No eyes, or at least very poorly developed eyes. Filter feeders mm -hmm. who burrow in the bed of streams and such and just hang out in the sediment, filter feeding until they gradually develop into the adult form of the slightly more horrifying lamprey. <laughs> because the idea, the form of amocetes kind of matches some people's predictions, some research predictions of early vertebrates, it has been suggested by some that the sort of transition from amocete to adult lamprey might represent a similar transition as early evolution of fishes. Yeah. That the amocete larva might be a holdover from earlier forms of lamprey. And so there have been some reconstructions of early fish were like amocetes and then evolved into early jawless fish like lampreys, which gave rise to fish more like we are familiar with them. Well, this study sheds some new light on that suggestion with larval lamprey fossils. <laughs> so back in 2006, uh, at least some of these authors were involved in the discovery of the oldest known lamprey, Priscomyzon, from the Waterloo Farm site in South Africa, an ancient coastal lagoon from the late Devonian period, around 360 million years ago. Lampreys don't fossilize well. They are soft. Yeah. They're wormy, soft things. They're squishy. This is a site of exceptional preservation that offers lots of soft tissue remains, so they got this wonderful fossil. It was a big deal back in 2006 when it was announced. And back then they reported that it looks a lot like modern lampreys. Mm -hmm. I remember when this came out. So it seems like this is, you know, yeah, lampreys are an ancient body plan. They've been around for a while. This study adds on to this by reporting a growth series of Priscomyzon from hatchling to adult. Whoa! The, an, an ontogenetic series. Go back to episode 33. They mentioned this was in, I think, the conversation uh, piece. The smallest one in their growth series was about 15 millimeters long and still had a yolk sac attached to it. Aww. Like, had just hatched. Aw, that's awesome. <laughs> so they have this growth series of several different life stages of this genus of lamprey. 
plus they were able to compare it with partial growth series from three other slightly younger lamprey genera. So not whole growth series, but at least some evidence of juveniles and larval stages. Snapshots. And in all four genera, what they found is that the larvae of these ancient lamprey are not amocetes. They are not filter-feeding, worm-like, blind, burrowy things. They have prominent eyes. They have sucky, toothy mouth parts. They're clearly eating things. They look like adult lamprey. They're just little baby versions of lamprey. Little baby lampreys. They also appear to represent at least three different lineages of early lampreys, suggesting that this is a common feature across the early evolution of lampreys. Yeah, that it's not likely three groups all individually developed a different version of baby than what ours has. (laughs) Right. Instead, what this suggests is that the modern version is the weird version. Huh. That's the derived form, something that evolved more recently. The authors suggest that it might be that that larval stage is what allowed them to live in streams and lakes and such. That might be a specialization for new habitats. This also suggests that amocetes, larval lampreys, are not a good indicator (laughs) necessarily of what the early origin of fishes is like. That's a recent thing. And in fact, they uh, did, it looked like a phylogenetic analysis in their study of these various lampreys that suggests that the last common ancestor of hagfish and lampreys, what would be the earliest fishes, were probably more like hagfish and lampreys. Macrophagus, right? Eating big things, swimming around in the water, rather than larval-like or amacete-like things. Which... A lot of the articles going around about this have big dramatic headlines like rewrite the textbooks and overturning our understanding of fish evolution, which is a little bit sensationalist, but this actually does sort of fly in the face of a not uncommonly held hypothesis that these larvae might be a clue to what early evolution of fish was like. I mean, that's that's kind of the hypothesis I'd always heard just passingly in biology classes and science classes that that's kind of what we thought early vertebrates were like sitting in the sand filter feeding and living that kind of lifestyle so yeah this is a big deal it's not necessarily burn down the institutions but it is that is a huge uh, a shift in the way to look at what the our earliest ancestors were like yeah an important note Very interesting. So modern lampreys are weirder than we thought lampreys just were being weird. Yes, no, that, and that's what I was about to say. I love that what we found was this weird group, because they're the only remaining jawless fish, so they're weird compared to everything else, basically, is actually also just weird. It's kind of like our modern sloths that we always point out. It's like, you're, (laughs) not only are you weird compared to everything else around you, because there's not a lot of you left... But also, you're just a weird version, evidently. Yeah, even the other lampreys are like, yeah, that guy? That's the one that made it? (laughs) (laughs) Weird. Yeah, well, yeah, because he could go into the the streams and rivers. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Tom, now I really want to know more about that. Well, if you want to learn more about it, there'll be a link to the article in the blog post that goes along with this episode. Just utter convenience. Well, speaking of interesting fossils in the ocean, this is some research about octopus feeding traces on clamshells. Cool. That pushes back evidence for this behavior 
in this group. And so shifts around our understanding of when some of these features evolved in octopuses. I like all of this. This research is by Adil Klompmacher and Neil Landman in Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society. Uh, the article we'll be linking is by Carolyn Gramling in Science News. So this is about very, very small traces, trace damages on some clam fossils, specifically three tiny holes. And when we say tiny, we mean between half and one millimeters in diameter. So tiny. Itty bitty. These clams are about 75 million years old. These clams are of a species known as Nymphalicina occidentalis and were found in South Dakota, which would have been an inland sea that one that was splitting North America in half during this time. The Western Interior Seaway. Yup. Episode 71. These oval holes, thinner than a strand of spaghetti, the article said. Fantastic. Right? Uh, it just puts it in perfect perspective. Are reminiscent of holes drilled in clams today by octopus. Yeah, this is a thing that uh, I believe a number of mollusk mm -hmm. groups do, where they'll drill holes through clamshells to suck out the juicy parts. Yeah, lots of snails do this. Lots of predatory, like, pre snails are way more predatory than most people realize. Yep. And it's on other shelled animals by drilling into their hard exoskeleton to get the juicy stuff on the inside. And they're drilling with something called a radula. This is a tongue-like structure, very common in mollusks, with toothy, hard pieces that basically is it's like a tongue with sandpaper or a chainsaw on it depending on which group you're looking at or a spear with some others highly modifiable and cephalopods many cephalopods still have it do have it and use it in feeding octopuses will use it to drill holes in prey that's too thick shelled for them to bite through normally uh, with their beaks yep so or they've got two like swiss army knife tools at their disposal oh absolutely with the yeah. beak and the radula to get through hard stuff it's yeah when you are being fed on by an octopus it's just a legitimate like <laughs> just john carpenter horror movie tendrils beak <laughs> drill tongue so yeah octopus will grab onto these shells drill a hole with their radula and then inject it with their venom partially digest and then more easily eat this prey. Right. I forgot to mention the venom when we yep. were describing the John Carpenter part of it. They are indeed venomous. <laughs> now, octopus drilled holes have been found in other fossil shells. This is not something new. It's not the first time we found fossil evidence. But those previously discovered shells were only about 50 million years old. This pushes it back 25 million years further. Ah, so they've been doing this since the Cretaceous. Yes, but longer than we previously thought... And this is also exciting because, like the lamprey, octopuses don't fossilize well. So being able to find these feeding traces gives us another way to mark octopus behavior and presence in the fossil record. Ah, uh, yeah, it's a trace fossil of octopus. Yes. So this is convenient for an animal that is so often poorly preserved. This older discovery also lends a little more support to the fact that octopuses have been pretty much octopuses for this time behavior and the fossils we have that we do have of octopuses going back even further than this also support that yep they've been more or less what we know as an octopus for a really long time and the discovery of these shells supports that this behavior may likely have evolved during something called the mesozoic marine revolution which is a time period during the mesozoic where there is an escalation in the 
arms race, predator-prey arms race in the ocean with predators starting to specialize in taking on hard-shelled prey. That they, they finally attacked these defensive prey animals in more regularity and in more specialized ways. And this seems to suggest that octopus also joined into this revolution with this drilling behavior, potentially. Gotcha. All the cool sea creatures were doing it. So <laughs> Octopus has joined it. <laughs> it's like, me too, guys, watch. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, just some interesting info about ancient octopus behavior. That's very cool. I wonder, so uh, way, way back, long-time listeners, uh, well, the true fans will remember, <laughs> uh, we did a Spotlight series a few years ago, and the last episode of the Spotlight series, we talked with Ranjiv Epa who studies feeding traces on bivalve shells. Yes. And we talked to him about how he does those studies. And if you remember from that Spotlight episode, um, I said, so we have those on clamshells that we use for educational stuff at the Gray Fossil site. If we send you those, could you tell us what made the holes in the clamshells? And he said, yes. And I said, cool, I'll do that. And I didn't. I wonder what makes an octopus feeding trace distinct from other feeding traces. I don't expect you to have the answer nope. to this question. Because the, the article was just like, and they looked like octopus feeding traces. Moving on. Right. I wonder what actually makes that distinction between an octopus or various types of snails. Ranjiv was saying that he could tell you different types of predatory snails. Which is fast. I assume there's got to be something with size and shape. Uh, but I wonder if it gets down to like the texture of the hole. Like, you know, well, like, like the... different... Uh, uh, wood making tools leave di uh, different marks on the wood. I wonder if it's something like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like if it's the, the way it is moving and the mm -hmm. way that it's interacting, like bite marks. Yeah. You know, you can tell how a predator with teeth was feeding based on how the teeth are interacting with the bone. I, uh, yeah, it's probably stuff like that. Very cool. Things that I don't know. Nope. Uh, somebody does. Maybe we'll talk to Ranjeev again. <laughs> yes. Well, speaking of examples of rare preservation from the late cretaceous that involve shells i mean that's a that's pretty good dinosaur nesting oh all right i see what you did there specifically a one of a kind so far specimen of a dinosaur brooding its nest which we've talked about before mm -hmm. that has been found before this one's unique okay just you wait this is research by Shundong B. et al. in Science Bulletin, and we'll link to an article in Live Science by Laura Gegel. The dinosaur specimen in question comes from the latest Cretaceous, Maastrichtian, about 70 million years old, of the Jiangxi province in China, and it is an oviraptorosaur. So this is a group of theropods, kind of ostrich-like, covered in feathers, Weird beaks and crests on their faces. Famous for their relations with nests. Indeed. This oviraptorosaur, is, which is not doesn't seem to have been identified beyond oviraptorosaur of some kind, All right. is fossilized on top of a nest of eggs. This has been seen before. Like uh, several other uh, examples of oviraptorosaurs on top of eggs, the body is directly over the eggs. The back legs are folded underneath the body. The arms are stretched downward and backwards, presumably to cover the eggs with the arms and the feathers on the arms. Mm -hmm. This is a what is sort of becoming classic dinosaur brooding posture. It is, that phrase right there is so we live in such a cool time. <laughs> it's so cool. 
And it uh, uh, the position of the body in regards to the eggs suggests that it was in close contact with the eggs, that this whole nest and parent was buried together. Wow. Now, the adult is not complete. I believe they said it was missing the skull and missing a few other pieces, but there's enough of the body there to, yeah, sitting on top of the eggs. Underneath the body were at least 24 eggs. Wow. That were roughly eight and a half by three inches or 21 by eight centimeters long, you know, oval shaped. And the part that makes this unique, we have found oviraptorosaurus brooding eggs before, but none of the other examples had confirmed embryos inside the eggs. Here, seven of these eggs had bones of the embryos exposed and fossilized. So we have uh, yet another evidence of a brooding, uh, presumably parent, but probably mother, question mark? But who's to say? Yeah, at that point, we, we have to start speculating pretty hard. With the developing embryos. There are a few interesting notes about this. Number one, the authors examined the oxygen isotopes of the eggshells and the embryo bones because the distribution of oxygen isotopes in the shell and bone are related to temperature. Right. And the oxygen isotopic composition they found matches models for high temperatures. They specifically cited temperatures between 86 and 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 30 to 38 degrees Celsius, high temperatures similar to modern birds. Yeah. As opposed to reptiles, which they cite tend to stay a bit cooler, 79 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit or 26 to 32 degrees Celsius. This is... Yet another piece of evidence that what we're seeing here is indeed brooding. Yes. This dinosaur was keeping the eggs warm underneath its body. Another interesting point they noticed is that some of the embryos were at very advanced growth stages, Mm. which suggests they were near hatching, but not all of them. Different embryos were at different stages of growth, which suggests a feature known as asynchronous hatching which simply means not all the eggs hatched at the same time. Mm-hmm. This is not unheard of. There are birds today that do this. Uh, I think the, the article specifically cited owls and pelicans huh. and a few others. But this is a feature that evolved late in modern birds. So crown group birds, the, the, the family of birds, the big family tree of birds that are still around today, This feature shows up late in that family tree. It is a derived feature. It is a derived feature, which suggests that it seems to have evolved at least one other time outside of birds in these oviraptorosaurs. And this is, you know, we've talked a lot about how a lot of the stuff we think of as being bird stuff first showed up outside of birds and other dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that is becoming more and more clear with studies like this is that it's not a linear story. It's not just that theropods had this, so birds had it. Dromaeosaurs and the the close relatives of birds had this. It's that many of these features were involved in complex evolutionary stories, showing up a few different times. It also means, and this is a note that the authors made specifically, that non-avian dinosaurs are not just an intermediate yes. between birds and more ancient reptilian ancestors. We can't just look at what 
other dinosaurs did and say, oh, okay, yeah, that's the stepping stone on the way the birds. Yep. It's much more complex. There's a lot of sort of a mosaic of features popping up here and there. Very cool find. Like, that's just, that's such a smorgasbord of, of information and really cool fossils. One of the questions that comes to mind for me is, I wonder what the benefit of having the babies, like, what, what how is that benefiting this dinosaur to have their babies born at different stages at different times. Um, I didn't go any deeper into that. My initial guess is that it means you don't have to feed as many mouths at the same time. Yeah. That they can kind of uh, hatch and leave in, in shifts in waves in waves. (laughs) Yeah. I guess the downside would be that you have to hang out at the nest longer. Yeah. Cause that's, I was uh, uh, the first thought I had with the varying stages of development was if they were, continuing to lay eggs you know if this was like a long period use nest or something weird like that oh, that's true or it could be like those penguins we learned about that that one of the eggs is worse yes yeah <laughs> here's the good eggs here's the bad eggs another thing there was one more thing sort of tacked on to the end of the life science article is that when we look past the brooding and the eggs and all that this is also the first fossil of an oviraptorosaur that has clear evidence of gastroliths <gasps> there's a little pile of pebbles in the, the belly region eee. that appear to have been uh, uh, chewing stones. Eee. Well, uh, grinding stones. Gastroliths are rocks that a number of animals, mm-hmm. including birds and some other archosaurs. The best ones. Swallow to p- uh, potentially help grind up food that they're not chewing. And it's been found in a bunch of dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Apparently, this is the first time that they found clear evidence of gastroliths. In an oviraptorosaur. And as always, I love when we find stuff like that, because now we're not just assuming because it makes sense. Right. Because yeah, it's, yeah, it it would have been weird to be like, yeah, and for some reason, oviraptors didn't use stones in their gizzards, or they didn't have gizzards for some, like, that would be weird. But yeah, now we know, definitely, they were using it the same way. Yeah. So this is a real exciting specimen. It's like it, the Rosetta Stone for oviraptorosaurs. <laughs> I love it. Telling us all sorts of stuff. Well, speaking of dinosaurs, <laughs> I have a news article here about young Tyrannosaur bites. All right. Yeah. Better or worse than their barks. <laughs> Probably we'll worse. We'll find out. Stay tuned. Tune in at nine. <laughs> this is research by Andre Rowe and Eric Snively in the Anatomical Record. And the press release we'll be linking to is by the University of Bristol in phys.org. This is a study examining the jaws of both juvenile and adult tyrannosaurids. So tyrannosaurids, famous group of the big predatory dinosaurs, with one member that most people know, Albertosaurus. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, a group of big predators, famously with powerful, overwhelming bites. Your tyrannosaurus is one of the big biters in Earth's history. Yeah, we've talked about this before, that their whole skull is sort of tuned to this function of biting stuff real hard. And particularly crushing, just smashing through flesh and bone with these big banana-like teeth to punch through armor and skeletal material. So this study was wanting to look at the bite stresses experienced by juvenile and adult skulls and how that would correlate with how they were biting. Right. So they, 
using CT scans, which there's been lots of CT scans of Tyrannosaurus and Tyrannosaurid skulls. They made 3D models to simulate bites. Yeah, they make them do a digital bite. Yes. It's like the uh, old... That old show on Animal Planet where it was the animals versus where they made the robot version to do all the tests. <laughs> they made a digital reconstruction, 3D model, and simulated bites. The hypothesis they were testing was that larger Tyrannosaurids, adults, would experience would experience lower peak stresses. Meaning that when they bit something, their skulls would experience fairly low stresses because of the reinforcements and developed features of an adult tyrannosaurus skull it was made to bite right hard. it's built to take it's built built tough yes so it's not going to experience high stresses because that's what it is adapted for while younger more less robust less deeper and more slender juvenile skulls would experience higher stresses because they are not yet grown to handle such strong bites makes sense to so me. their peak stresses would be higher and this would correlate with lower bite forces for the juveniles, higher bite forces for the adults, be- them being capable of lower and higher because of those stress limiters. When they ran the test, they actually found the opposite. Hmm. So taking into consideration the musculature of the skulls and putting that into the bite simulations, they found that juveniles experienced lower stresses because they could not produce strong enough bites to peak out their stresses on the skull. Right. They're, they're not getting as much stress because they just can't bite hard enough yeah. to do that. They can't produce the force to produce the stress. Hmm. While adults were finding much higher peaks and they were just big enough to take it, basically. Just robust enough to handle the stress instead of dissipating it. Right, right, right. Yeah, they're experiencing high stress because you can't bite as hard as an adult tyrannosaur yep. and not experience high stress. Yes, they are biting really hard and creating big stresses and they just... Write it out. Yeah, we should. Uh, we should uh, stress that when we say stress in this context, we mean like physical force, mechanical stresses, mechanical stress on the bone, like the, the force that threatens to damage or weaken the bone. Is it when you sit in a wicker chair and it goes? That's stresses that's a, in the tra- the chair. <laughs> mechanical stress making sound. Yes, that's what they're talking about here. They found the opposite. Now, when they disregarded the musculature, the young indeed did experience higher peak forces because their skulls could not handle bite forces like an adult's. But when you actually take into consideration the anatomy, they couldn't produce, they weren't producing those bite forces. Gotcha. So the young ones were, I mean, probably biting just fine. Oh yeah, I still don't want to be bitten by a young Tyrannosaurid. But they weren't like, I'll chew up your sedan. Yeah, they're not like an crunching adult. probably. Which supports uh, something I think we talked about in a news... Last episode. Yep, I believe that was last episode. That young theropods may have been filling roles of different medium-sized predators. Yeah. As acting like a medium predator instead of just a small tyrannosaurid. They were biting and feeding differently, so they may have been filling a role like a dromaeosaurid, a raptor. and yeah, or something in, between, in the mm-hmm. intermediate size range. Another just interesting thing they found is that one of the pterygoid jaw muscles was linked to decreasing stressing uh, forces near the front of the jaw, near the front of the mouth, which is where it has been proposed from other studies, other biomechanical studies, that that's where the peak bite force for a tyrannosaurid would be, is toward the front where those really big teeth 
hang down on the T-Rex skull, that that's where they're producing their crushing force. And this jaw muscle is acting as a stress reliever for that. Gotcha. And this is just interesting when it comes to strong biting animals, because it's the opposite of what we see in like a croc. That Okay. Yeah, yeah. Who have their conical crushing teeth at the back toward the hinge. Yeah, well, and it makes me think of uh, mammals. Mm-hmm. You know, mammals with strong bite forces, uh, particularly predators, that crunching part of the bite tends to be in the back of the mouth like we've discussed when your dog gets a bone they bring it to the back of the mouth which is something i'm sure we may or may not hear a bunch more about later in this episode yep and it makes mechanical sense like that's why nut old classic nutcrackers you put it in the hinge of the nutcracker Mm -hmm. right up where the joint is and that's where the highest forces tyrannosaurids seem to have been specialized for a farther up peak bite force interesting closer to the front of the mouth huh yeah. Interesting. I wonder why. I wonder if it's that you're needing, like, a croc is using that crushing bite force when they're eating. Like, mm-hmm. that's not the killing part of it. They're not, you know, they're not grabbing prey with the back teeth because the back teeth actually aren't as sharp. Right. Which is also true of things like dogs, mm-hmm. which wolves and such grab with the canines up front and chew with the molars in the back. That those are feeding teeth. I wonder if for T-Rex, it's like, no, no, I need to kill yeah. With this level of bite force, because I'm biting through hadrosaurs and ceratopsians. Like, I'm biting through big animals, and I need to put all that force right up where the killing teeth are. Interesting. Yeah, they didn't give an explanation for why that was, but that's right. something that has been uh, shown in other studies, and this muscle seems to support that. Yeah, there was musculature to aid in the stresses of putting all your force up front. Well, what a cool group of animals. They're so extreme. And speaking of extreme bites, we now can end the news and start talking about our topical animal, hyenas. Oh, like the the go-to example of powerful biters. I can't tell you how many articles I came upon while Googling hyenas that were about other animals just saying... Boy, it bites like a hyena. Yep, I was going to say, that's every time we discover that some fossil animal has a real strong bite, we go, oh, like a hyena. Because, yeah, that's sort of their, it's one of their claims to fame. It's their shtick. And we're going to learn a little bit about that shtick after the break. Well, I can't wait. I feel like hyenas are one of those groups of animals that many people feel familiar with, but very often don't actually know a lot about. The true hyena. Yeah, the, what what there really is to know about this group. Because that's where I was at the beginning of note-taking for this. It's like, yeah, I, I think I kind of know hyenas, and then found out, nope, sure don't. <laughs> well, I'm excited because I, I think that for a lot of people, like my trajectory has been... I knew about hyenas because of The Lion King. Yep. And then I knew about more hyenas because of documentaries and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I am, I've gotten into biological studies, and I know a lot of bio- biology nerds, so I've learned other stuff about hyenas. And I feel like I have a pretty good sense of, of hyenas, but the fact that you say you learned a bunch makes me suspect that I don't know as much as I thought I yeah, did. That's kind of how this group feels, and that's actually what a lot of the articles I found talked about that there are a lot of assumed knowledge about hyenas that is very well known and very wrong 
Hmm. You know, and that's been a, a trial for researchers of hyenas because they have very strong reputations. That is not factual. Yeah. The Lion King was a real good movie. Yes. But mm-hmm. uh, like Jaws before it. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's something that goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years in human culture. We tend to have very poor views of hyenas as a species. Like, hmm. Human and hyena relationships have not been good because hyenas have gotten colored as these mischievous, untrustworthy, underhanded, lowly scavengers. Yeah. And while there is some truth to... There there is sources for that mentality, it it greatly skews an accurate perception of these animals. Hmm. So this is a hyena appreciation episode. Oh boy, do I appreciate them after all these notes. They're so cool. In this house, we appreciate... We stand hyenas in this house. (laughs) So, what is a hyena? Let's dive into it. Hyenas are carnivorans, mm-hmm. the group, the order carnivora, that includes most of your carnivorous mammals, your dogs, your bears, your cats, your mustelids. These are all carnivorans. Yep. Cats, episode 93, dogs, episode 94, pinnipeds, episode 104. Yep. That's it so far. The group is split between the canids and the filiformids, and... You find your cats and your dogs in the names that match. Hyenas, though looking very dog-like and often portrayed as, like, big Africa dogs, they're in the filiforma. Yeah, so they're the caniforms. Mm-hmm. Dogs, bears, pinnipeds, etc. Mustelids are over there. Filiforms, felids, cats, and, yeah, hyenas are over there. So they are not dogs in any way. They are much more related to cats, though... In the group, they are more closely related to uh, mongooses and the the civets, the viveridae. Okay. So they're not really cats. They have lots of differences, but there are some similarities in there that really scream these are related to cats. So what are some of the features that make up the hyenidae, the family hyenidae? Well, I don't know. You're the one who did the research for this episode. All right. Well, then I'll tell you. These are typically kind of heavily built animals. They have robust chests and stocky necks with powerful heads. That's kind of a common feature of most of the hyenas around today. And one of the things that's immediately noticeable about them that kind of stands them out from basically all the other predators, predatory mammals, is that their front limbs are longer than their back limbs, which means their back slopes down toward the rump. Yeah, it's sort of like a bison. Yeah, it's got... They have high shoulders. And yeah, and it's not because there's a hump on the back. Their back just is higher up front. Yeah. They're just angled more upward, which is very unusual. It's what gives them their loping... I I saw one thing describe it as limping gait, that weird Mm kind of rocking run that they are so known for. Yeah, so they're convergent with brachiosaurs. (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah. They run almost more like a giraffe. (laughs) And while they're running, they're running on non-retractable claws. Mm -hmm. So they are not having cat-like claws. These are actually more dog-like, more canid-like, just good for running. So there are some convergent similarities in that they kind of have a dog body plan going on. Longer limbs, more made for running out in the open, robust skull, are a bit canid, but then you get to things like they do have rough cat-like tongues. Huh. 
Which, yeah, I didn't know until... I would not have thought to ask about hyena tongues. Yeah. I, I When I was going through, I went, wait a minute. And sure enough, yeah, they have rough tongues. Little sandpaper tongues. Little sandpaper tongues. Hmm. Which is evidently also a feature in the Viverids, which are their closer cousins. So that is a feliform. There's a couple of groups that have that feature. Interesting. For the most part, they have striped coats, except for the spotted hyena, which is spotted. And this is another thing that they share with Viverids. That's a very common coat feature and that may be ancestral. That may be a this group thing. They also have manes running down the back. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of people think about that because the spotted hyena, which we're going to talk a lot about this episode, because that's the big famous one for very good reasons. And it is notable. So it's there's good reasons to talk about it. But that's what most people think of. And it doesn't have... A really like exaggerated mane, you know the the Lion King ones did because they had hair, right? Because they had Whoopi Goldberg hair, right? <laughs> but the other ones have manes that they can actually stand up to make themselves look bigger and display like long, exaggerated mohawks down the back. But then we go back to being kind of similar to canids in that their dentition, their teeth are actually kind of dog-like. You know, if you look at a hyena skull, it's not really you know, one-to-one with a dog skull, but there are a lot of parallels in the way the teeth are organized and teeth that are prioritized. But some of the main features when you're looking at the hyena face, the skulls are robust. They've got a large sagittal crest, the crest on the top of the skull for big biting muscles, big jaw muscles. They still have those famous carnasials that are the carnivorin teeth for slicing through meat, which in hyenas are positioned behind their really famous teeth, which are two ridiculous premolars. Yeah, hyena skull. As I said in the beginning, for me, when I hear hyena, the first thing that comes to mind is the skull of a hyena, Mm -hmm. which doesn't look quite like anything else. Yes. They've got that huge crest on the top, which is attachment for jaw muscles. They've got that big, deep jaw, and they've got just those giant carnivore teeth. Yeah, their third premolar on both the top and bottom on both sides is... This big thumb of a tooth that is robust, reinforced for inducing ridiculously strong bite forces. Hyenas are the go-to example among mammals and really among modern day large animals Mm -hmm. for things that bite real hard. Though I found out uh, not the strongest bite to body size. That's the Tasmanian devil. So, and I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. Hyenas bite harder than a Tasmanian devil because they're bigger but, yeah, no, Tasmanian devils are... <laughs> if we, we had ha- a hyena-sized Tasmanian devil, they'd be uh, have a truly horrifying Everyone bite. would have to leave Australia. <laughs> 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 they also have a shorter snout, which is kind of more feline-like. Yes. They don't have that long wolf snout. They have a fairly short face. These are all gen- the general trends for hyenas. Though there is still a decent amount of variety among the extant living hyenas which there are only four. We only have four species today, all within hyena day. We have the striped hyena, hyena hyena, the brown hyena, hyena brunia, sometimes previously known as para hyena. So this used to be in a separate genus. The spotted hyena, crocuda crocuda, and the aardwolf, Proteles cristata, which takes kind of a left turn there at the end. Sure does. These are the four Living hyenas, uh, there are potentially a few subspecies uh, in there, but for the most part, 
four species living today, and they are actually fairly diverse. You can't just say any one of these is a atypical hyena, because when you compare it to the other three, they're all decently different, living sometimes extremely different lifestyles, which is something I didn't realize, that they were so varied just among the four. So let's get to know each of these species really quick. Now, the three that are the most hyena-like, quote-unquote, based on what we were just saying, is the striped, the brown, and the spotted. Those are much more similar in the overall like body features and somewhat their lifestyles. The striped hyena, hyena hyena, is actually very widespread. It's found throughout North and Northeast Africa, into the Middle East, and even into, through Asia, into the India subcontinent. Hmm. So wide-ranging, a bit more northern than the other species. It is the smallest of the true hyenas, the hyena. The one, the, the, the hyenas that aren't an aardwolf? Yes, exactly. Yeah. It is the smallest of these, and they refer to them sometimes as the true hyenas because the aardwolf is the outlier of these four. Mm-hmm. It is more sister group to these other three, which are more closely related. It has a striped coat, as its name suggests, and average sizes would be about 35 kilograms or 77 pounds. And we're looking at something that's about 70 centimeters high, a couple feet tall at the shoulder. So, you know, about the size of a a decent medium-sized dog. Then you have the brown hyena, sometimes called the strandwolf, which is South African at the very tip. Much more reduced range. It's only found there. It is the rarest of the hyenas. Uh, It's the only one that's near threatened on the IUCN red list. You typically find it in like desert, semi-desert, woodland savannas. And as its name suggests, is brown in color and has a much longer fur coat. Yeah, it looks a little bit wooly. Yeah, it's uh, shaggy is how I've heard it described. Yeah, shaggy is a good... Well, the the picture you showed me looks like a wild boar. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. Slightly longer... Tufty fur. Yeah, the striped hyena has very vivid black stripes on the brown fur and then a really exaggerated mohawk. A very pretty hyena, I actually think. They're, they they look real good. Both of these, though, are still very hyena-esque. Uh, they, you know, they're, they're distinguished. The brown hyena also has more pointed ears and a shorter tail than the other, so it is a bit distinct, but it is a little bit bigger than the striped hyena, so we're getting a size category up. Not much bigger, though. And then we get to the spotted hyena, which is what you think of when you're thinking of a hyena. Like, picture in your head a hyena? Yep, that's a spotted hyena. Chenzi Banzai and Ed. Yes. These are the most numerous, the most widespread. These are also the biggest hyenas we have today. These are known as the laughing hyenas a lot of the time. These are the ones that giggle. Not all hyenas giggle. Hmm. That's not a hyena thing. That's a spotted hyena thing. Gotcha. And we'll get into why that is. We'll go over some of their other features as a group and how they differ after this. These are native to sub-Saharan Africa. So basically, Africa's kind of split north and south of the Sahara with the striped hyenas up top and the spotted hyenas basically everywhere south of that. These get decently sized. They can weigh, on average, around... 100 to 140 pounds, so we're talking 50 to 60 kilograms or so. And standing at shoulder height, these can get up to about 3 feet tall or 90 centimeters. So 
these are actually decently sized animals. You know, these are not quite lion sized predators, but these are big predators. They've sometimes been called the strangest hyena because they have a lot of weird features like the giggle. These also, when it comes to the sizes, flip from the other two where males are typically larger in the striped and brown, females are larger in the spotted, which we'll get into because there's a lot to talk about there. And these are often the ones that have some of the really bad reputations. Like these are seen as just the the scourge of the Serengeti, you know, that they're just nasty animals. And these are the ones that a lot of people have put a lot of work in trying to reverse that point of view because they're actually fascinating creatures. Now, I've seen this one called the strangest hyena, but then we get to the aardwolf. Which all, just by the name. Yeah. Is the strangest hyena. Aardwolf, which means earth wolf. I was going to ask. Sometimes called the manhar jackal, which stands for main jackal, or the civet hyena, or the termite eating hyena. Oh, that's right. They eat termites. Which is what makes this one weird. This is an insectivorous hyena. That's I was like, I know something about aardwolves. That's what it is. They're termitivores. Yep. This is the only member of the subfamily Protellinae. So this is, used to be separated from Hyenidae. It is now within Hyenidae, but it is definitely the most basally split. So it is separated from the other three, most notably. The striped and brown are very closely related, both in the same genus. Then the spotted, and then off to the side, the aardwolf. Visually, it actually looks a lot like the striped hyena, just much more slim and slight more lightly built, thinner snout, thinner limbs, and it is the smallest hyena. These tend to not even be two feet tall at the shoulder, about 50 centimeters, and typically only weighing a max of 10 kilograms or 22 pounds. Very small. Itty bitty hyenas. Hmm. These are by far the smallest hyenas. These are found in East and Southern Africa. Bigger range than the brown hyena, but still a fairly small range compared to the other two. And I feel the aardwolf is a good segue into talking about hyena diets, which most people assume they know what they are, but are actually much more varied than you might expect since we have an insectivorous hyena. <laughs> that is one of the big things that stands the aardwolf out. Now, it is not just eating a lot of bugs. It is actually insectivorous. It feeds primarily its main food source is termites. It patrols its territory and I saw one metric that said it consume up to 250,000 termites a night using its long sticky tongue and it just laps them off the ground. It doesn't actually dig into the mound like a anteater, you know, or or a pangolin sort of thing. It just finds the mounds and then the termites that are around the mound, it licks them up. And this means it doesn't destroy the mound, so it can always revisit them. Right. I think the idea of a large animal cuz you know, 20 pounds, that's still a big animal yeah, to be eating. small. Bugs is odd to me mm -hmm. here in this continent, but it's important to remember that over in Africa, that's the place where you get the giant termite mounds. Yes. And that, funnily enough, uh, there are a number of ant or termite specialists, and they have the long sticky tongue. Yep. You know, anteaters, pangolins. And there are a couple that get to pretty good sizes. Giant anteaters are huge. Yeah. That's why they're called that. Yeah. And so fun to think of an a carnivoran that has specialized in doing the anteater thing. And they've done it to the extent that it's not the only thing they eat. Uh, I saw noted that it can feed on other insects. You know, it's not exclusively termites. And there are examples of eating like larvae and eggs of other things. 
and may take small animals, but I did see it noted that it does not like meat. Interesting. It does not eat meat, and there's one even saying that if it is seen around a carcass, it's probably eating the bugs at the carcass, not the carcass. Very interesting. And even funnier, uh, one article said it won't eat meat unless finely ground or cooked for them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that makes sense. You know, one of the things that grinding and cooking meat does is it makes it a lot easier to chew and process. And if you're built to only be chewing and processing bugs, yeah, you're probably not going to do very well with steak. And that is one of the things notable about the Ardwolf's anatomy. They have the same dental plan, so all the same teeth are there. Though some of them may be lost by the time they're fully grown adults, like reduced so much. But they're much just more reduced in size and power. So they don't have the same shaped teeth as the other hyenas, but they're all still there. So they haven't lost their teeth. Right. Give it a few more million years of evolution mm-hmm. and they'll be toothless and tube-shaped snouts like anteaters and penguins. Bleh. This is particularly notable considering that all three of the other hyenas are specialized bone crunchers. Yeah, they are. Kind of the opposite end of termites. (laughs) Well, it's fun that hyenas are all dietary specialists. Mm -hmm. You know, there isn't... You can have a hyena with a varied diet, but they're built to do a certain thing. And the famous thing that hyenas are built to do is crack bones. Yes. We call this osteophagy. They are eating bones. They are durophagous. They eat durable stuff. That enlarged premolar is a nutcracker for cracking into typically the limb bones, but also ribs and spinal columns of carrion and prey animals that they that allows them to get to the marrow inside the bones, which is very nutrient rich, and the minerals in the bone themselves. Right. This is a uh, bone crunching is a, a technique we see in a, a handful of animals. Yeah. And in the hyena, what really makes them notable is that they live in on this continent in these habitats with a bunch of other predators. Mm-hmm. You've got lots of big cats, you've got wild dogs uh, across Africa. Being able to crack through bone to get to the nutrients inside allows you to stand apart from the other animals. It means you can access a part of the carcass that most of your competitors out there can't deal with. It makes you a more efficient feeder at a dead animals than other predators can physically be. Yeah, and it means that even if you got there after the cheetahs Mm -hmm. had already eaten everything they could, cheetahs will only eat the soft parts. So all this wonderful, nutritious skeleton is still there. And a lot of predators won't eat things like skin or certain organs they'll skip over because it's not meat. It, the organ doesn't have a lot. Hyenas will basically eat all of that. Skin, fur, hoof, horn, bone, guts, and organs. The Serengeti's garbage disposal. And their stomachs fit that role. They are highly efficient, very caustic digestive system that is able to... not just They're not just crunching bone to get to what's inside. They digest the bone. Cool. They actually do digest it, and they comes out as a white paste in their I was, poop. I was going to say, don't they poop white because <laughs> yep. it's got all the calcium in it? I seem to remember a video going around several years ago that I saw of a hyena feeding on the organs of an elephant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it had done this by finding a passage into the carcass <laughs> of the elephant. And to get past all the real tough skin and stuff to get to the organs. And the passage that was available was the rear end of the elephant. (laughs) So there's this video of a hyena, like, 
shoulder deep in the butt of an elephant carcass going after the organs. Real hot in these elephants. (laughs) And yet they are basically undeterred by any food source. One article I was reading by a person who's been studying them for just years and years during the interview, they were asked, is there anything that would turn the stomach of a hyena? And the researcher paused and said, not that I've seen. (laughs) So they're like tiger sharks. They just will eat and they can eat fully rotten meat, which means that they can eat what would be toxic to most things is food for them and they can process it. Their digestive system is able to process it. There is a cool potential connection to the aardwolf with this because they can process the toxins and acids in the termites, which some have suggested might be a derived new use for that strong carrion stomach. So in a, in a variety of ecosystems where you have lots of competition with other predators, the way you've chosen to get around that is by being able to eat everything. Yes. And this makes them excellent scavengers. They, they can just scavenge and utilize a corpse to its full extent, which is what the striped and brown hyenas do almost exclusively. That is, they are primarily scavengers. They will hunt other things. A striped hyena has even been noted to take in insects and fruit, hmm. you know, semi-omnivorous and small animals it hunts, but both are known as scavengers, which is the image we all have as hyenas. You know, they are the Africa's cleanup service. Right. And, and it's easy to see from this description how hyenas might get a bad reputation as the animals that are kind of weird looking and from this description so far it's kind of easy to see where hyenas might get a reputation as being unpleasant Mm -hmm. and you know they're kind of weird looking they have this habit of eating all the stuff that other animals aren't gonna go near objectively gross stuff carcasses rotten stuff sticking their heads inside the back ends of elephants to eat the organs yeah it's it's easy to see why someone had after a little bit of exposure, might go, yeah, that's a gross animal. Yep. And then we get to a beautiful, ironic moment, which is the most famous hyena, the spotted hyena, is not primarily a scavenger. Right. It is actually an avid, active hunter. Yeah. And and they live alongside the most famous hunters mm-hmm. in Africa, right? The big cats of Africa. So right there, while the striped and brown are indeed primarily scavengers. That's half the hyenas. Mm -hmm. The other halves eat bug and are active, really good hunters. Yeah, successful hunters. I saw one thing that said about 95% of the food they eat is food they killed. Hmm. That the vast majority is not kills they've come upon, but kills they've made. Right. So now they still are excellent scavengers. Spotted hyenas still have that ironclad stomach. That Dwarven stomach. Yep, I was going to say. That lets them just eat whatever. They still have that bone crunching, and they're actually the ones that seem to be the best at it. Mm-hmm. They seem to be the most specialized with the most powerful bite of all the hyenas. So they're still good at all that stuff. Right. But they're not relying on scavenging to make their daily meals. Right. They're more like, you know, a typical predator yeah. that you think of where, yeah, hunting is your go-to but if you find a carcass, meat is meat and nothing is eating it or something is eating it. But you're pretty sure you could <laughs> but scare it's the smaller <laughs> than you. <laughs> yeah, you're, but you're pretty sure you're going to win that fight. Then, yeah, go for it. One of the things that makes this behavior of theirs very clear when you look at their anatomy is spotted hyenas have 
much more notable sharp carnasials behind those big premolars. Uh, not just for crunching, but for mm-hmm. shearing as well. Theirs are much sharper and not nearly as blunt as the other hyenas, so that they have that crushing premolar and then a sharp blade behind it to slice through the meat of the kill they just made. Gotcha. Another thing that sets the spotted hyena apart from the other three is they are highly social. I've heard this. Yes. While the other three are not, which is something I didn't know. Are they solitary? Some of them, yeah. Huh. The aardwolf is primarily solitary. They mate, but they go and feed alone. So you typically will see one by itself. The striped hyena used to be thought to be solitary, but more recent findings have found them to be monogamous with a mating pair or sometimes in small groups depend in certain areas and under certain conditions. So slightly more social. And the brown hyena I've seen compared to wolf-like lifestyles with small family groups, closely okay. related individuals, you know, max like 14 animals. So that'd be a big group of brown hyenas from what I've found. But in most cases, they're still foraging and hunting on their own and doing most stuff individually, though they may live sometimes or sometimes interact with each other. So not really very social, not what we would call highly gregarious. They don't group together often and in big numbers. Spotted hyenas are known to live in groups of 10 mm-hmm. to 90. <laughs> <laughs> Huge a, clans. A flock of hyenas. Giant groups of hyenas that are not closely related family groups. Okay. Many related and unrelated members making these giant clans that hold large territories that they patrol, which is also not as normal for the other hyenas. This also leads them to be much more socially complex. Mm -hmm. Their social behavior is way more extreme than the other three. One of those things being vocalizations, that giggle is part of that social expression to communicate with each other, though they also have a whole bunch of facial expression and body language communications. But, and this is something I just kind of had always assumed, they still hunt individually most of the time. Oh, interesting. It's only for particularly big prey that they will have to group together to take it down. Now, once something is taken down, they will group together to all feed on it. Right. But a single hyena can take down a wildebeest, and typically that's how it goes. Huh. It's things like zebra and buffalo that need a group of them. Right, right. Yeah, I guess uh, even for a wildebeest, you don't want to get any part of you caught in the jaws of a hyena. Yeah. It's, a, a, a single hyena is a highly effective individual predator. Yeah. And it's got, like we were talking about in the news, a little bit of the T-Rex thing going mm-hmm. on. It's like, yeah, that bite is not... It's kind of a game changer. Yeah, that, that, that might will do it. <laughs> so spotted hyenas just really aren't doing anything that a normal, rational person would expect them to be right. doing. The stereotypical expected hyena stuff. Yeah, or expected carnivorous stuff. Like, That's they're true. also way more social than any other carnivorous. Like, That's true. lions are the famous social, and they've got like, what, 20 lions maybe for a big group of lions or oh, something? Yeah. And most canids like we talked about in episode 94 we think of them being social and they are yes but they're not in groups of 90 no i know african wild dogs will will get into big groups so it's not exclusive but yeah no hyenas seem to run the gamut they are really extreme and then the spotted hyenas have to add one more thing naturally which is in all the other hyenas males and females are 
similar size or the males are a little bit bigger. Right, which is true of most carnivorans. Mm-hmm. It, it, cats, canids, bears, this is often the case that they're either very similar or the males are the big competing ones. Yep. Spotted hyenas, females are larger. Females are dominant. Yep. And when I say dominant, it's not like, yeah, they tend to pull rank. No, no. They run every aspect of hyena life. Yeah, they're in charge. The males are subservient to even juvenile females, typically. Oh, interesting. <laughs> like, females are on top, end of sentence. Yeah, heavily matriarchal mm-hmm. in their culture. It's even to the point that your rank in society is determined by the rank that your mother was. Oh, cool. Which is actually bestowed upon the young because female because female hyenas douse their young with testosterone and other hormones while in the womb just before birth, which uh. increases their aggressive and dominant sinking behavior. And the more dominant the female, the higher ranking the female, the more extreme the flush of testosterone. Cool. So higher ranking females give birth to more go get them young. Yeah, you inherit your rank. Yes. It's really extreme. To the point that female spotted hyenas, only spotted hyenas, mm-hmm. not the other three. Just this one. Have pseudo penises. Yeah, it, this is, there's a handful of animals that do this where when the male is typically the dominant one and part of that dominance comes from physical displays, when it's inverted, females will start to mimic mm-hmm. or develop features that mimic the male features and in the case of the spotted hyena females develop their genitals into a penis shape yes and it's extremely convergent in shape yeah it's not like a little yeah i guess that kind of passes yeah, as... yeah it, it's like when a, a cloud goes by and you're like yeah that's kind of you know. <laughs> it looks kind of like a turtle yeah no no these are these are serious heavy duty genitals so going into the anatomy of this pseudopenis the pseudopenis, the part of the shaft, is the clitoris, mm-hmm. expanded out into a very penis-like shape. They pee out of it, they mate through it, and they give birth through it. So, I mean, yeah. it is still the sexual organ. They that It is their extended birth canal. Mm-hmm. While the labia has fused to make a pseudoscrotum. Yeah. So, they don't only have a pseudopenis, they also have a fake male scrotum. This is so extreme that historically people thought hyenas were hermaphroditic, just switching back and forth. Huh. Yeah. They didn't understand what their only males running around. That they were being, sometimes they were being uh, tricked by the fake male genitals. Yep. And it is so good that I, I found one story of people who work with hyenas working with young male hyenas for years and years and then being surprised when it gives birth. <laughs> wow. So, an extreme adaptation. Now, why they have this? Like, what's the purpose behind it? We're not 100% sure. There's a couple of hypotheses. It is definitely a hindrance to, like, anatomically. Yep. Because it makes mating more difficult and birth. Yeah. You also have an external weak point, Mm -hmm. which is an issue that most male mammals share. Yep. One report I read said that in human care, so not... We can't necessarily say this for uh, wild hyenas, but in human care, 60% of first births in female hyenas aren't successful. Oh, I've, I've heard of statistics mm-hmm. like that. Because like, the young suffocate in the birth canal because it's so long. Yeah. 
And later ones are more successful, but it is a hindrance to birth. It doesn't appear to be a side effect of the flushing of testosterone that I mentioned. Because hmm. they gave some hyenas medication that stopped that. Females still were born with pseudopenises. Hmm. So it's not something about their development that caused this thing. So there's some reason they have it. One of the suggestions is it gives them almost complete, uh, like an amazingly complete control over mating. The female is 100% the deciding factor of whether or not she is mated with. Huh. Because it's difficult. Yeah, we talked in episode 63 about sexual selection Mm -hmm. and about how there's often competition between males and females when it comes to mating. That there's a bit of antagonism where sometimes even violently. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, if you make it a real challenge, (laughs) it gives you a lot more control. If a female hyena decides she's not being mated with, she's not going to be mated with. Hmm. And after mating, if she decides she's changed her mind about that male, she can flush the system by peeing. Interesting. So she can just reverse a mating. 100% control. Wow. So it's an extra layer of dominance. Yeah. Over the whole social dynamic. This extreme social behavior has also led spied hyenas to be noted as very intelligent. Not just like for, for carnivorans, but like in general... They are actually very smart, good problem-solving animals because they are very good at working together. Mm-hmm. One study actually found that they were more efficient at solving tasks together than chimpanzees. Wow. When given a test to have to pull two ropes attached to a platform that would then open a trapdoor and drop meat, hyenas were more efficient at solving that than chimps would be with a similar task. Uh, the One of the researchers was quoted saying, chimps would need to be trained these hyenas were not trained. Wow. <laughs> and in fact, they said when they set it up and let the first pair of hyenas in, they solved it in less than two minutes. Wow. I mean, I guess having big social groups and complex social mm-hmm. dynamics lends to that sort of thing. Well, and one of the things that people point out is a big difference between hyenas and other highly social animals like primates is hyenas are hunters. Mm. When you have to work together to take something down, you have to work together perfectly like you have to get that task done to kill this animal it's a very different sense of teamwork than just socially working together and being together right it is a task oriented interesting they're a special ops team yeah and that's what they said the uh the end quote was saying uh this is christine dre who was the researcher said i'm not saying that spot hyenas are smarter than chimps i'm saying that these experiments show that they are more hardwired for social cooperation than chimps Fascinating. So very smart animals, socially complex, and and more complex as predators than one might expect. Now, I we could talk all day about how weird the hyenas today are. That that's these are fascinating creatures that are very poorly represented, and there's a lot of cool info out there that we could explore. But we're on a schedule and we've yet to talk about extinct hyenas spent this whole episode in the modern day yep so after this break let's talk a little bit about where hyenas came from and what they've looked like in their history (laughs) as we mentioned earlier The four hyenas we have today is not 
at all representative of what hyenas used to be like. This is a theme we come upon rather often that the living representatives are not always the common or average. Sometimes they're weird. Yes. Now, there are definitely plenty of fossil hyenas that look like ours, but one of the biggest notable things is we only have four, and currently known throughout the fossil record, there's, a, I think, a little more than 80 known fossil species. So they used to be much more numerous and diverse and just more common. So today we think of them as African animals. That wasn't always the case. They are African animals now, but in the past they were more widespread, more diverse, more numerous, and that's like elephants. Mm -hmm. They used to be a fairly common feature of the planet. Now we think of them as this kind of specialized, specific thing, but that's not how it used to be. So let's talk a little bit about their history. According to molecular evidence, it seems that hyenids split from their feliform sister groups not quite 30 million years ago. Okay. Middle Oligocene. Now, we don't have fossils at that time, but according to the molecular data, that's probably when they started splitting from the other feline-esque things. Right, that's what the DNA says. Mm -hmm. Fossil evidence solidly goes back to 22 million years in the Miocene. Now, I've seen a couple suggesting that support, mainly support for an African origin, but then I've also seen a few mention a Eurasian, that that's where we find the oldest stuff. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I haven't found a clear definitive part of the reason for this muddying of the waters is because, like today's hyenas, who have fairly large ranges, like they're in multiple habitats, covering majority of continents, we also see that in the fossil groups, so... It's not always clear where they started because they're living across multiple, when you know what today would be countries. Mm -hmm. So they're widespread, which can sometimes make it difficult to pin down. I saw one report saying that some of the oldest are found in Europe, but then there's some that are barely younger than them in China. So it, that might just be a side effect of the fossils. Like we have similarly aged in very disparate places. But I definitely saw a few suggesting an African origin that they then spread out. So these early hyenids did not look like what we think of as hyenas yet. They were more similar to civets. I've seen them compared a lot of times to the African civet, which, as mentioned earlier, is one of their close cousins, the civet group, the viverids. One of these early groups uh, is a genus known as Pliovivarops. These show up in Eurasia 22, 20 million years ago. So still in that Miocene time frame. This is also roughly the time that we see other members of the, the phyloid families starting to appear around this time. So it seems to be in a similar time frame for our hyenids. This was civet-like, more long-bodied. Yeah, kind of like a, a, a small long cat. Yeah, exactly. They identified it as hyenid, this, you know, this group based on middle ear and dentition. Okay, not and, surprised. Mm -hmm. teeth, teeth are involved. Yep. This group and groups like these would give rise to a bit more hyenid-looking groups. Some of which, though, diverged in a different way. So around a little less than 15 million years ago, we see hyenids split into two fairly distinct groups. And I've seen them described a, a couple of different ways. The hyena-like hyenids, 
naturally, <laughs> which are the Bone Crushers, is what I've more often seen this group called. The ones we think of as our hyenas today, one split was very much reminiscent of today's striped brown and spotted hyenas. And then the other are the non-hyenid hyenids. <laughs> one paper actually did. That was the term it used the whole time, which I found very funny. Or, more descriptively, the dog-like hyenas. That would have been my guess. These are not like our hyenas today, because today's hyenas are kind of robust. They're a bit tough. They're beefy. Beefy. Uh, That's not to say they aren't good runners. The spotted hyena is running its prey down, and it's actually very agile. Like, it's a hunter. But it's not built as a runner as much as, like, a canine. Right. Canids are really specialized for that cursorial, Mm -hmm. that running behavior. That's what we see in these dog-like hyenas. Longer limbs, more gracile, you know, less robustly built, seemingly made for running. Yeah, which is cool because these are two behavioral styles that we see pop up over and over again in predators throughout Earth history. Mm Mm-hmm. Long-legged, specialized for running, for clearing long distances. Today, we associate that often with canids, but that's something we've seen show up in a bunch of different... I mean, tyrannosaurs were that to a point. And bone crunching is another thing that we've seen show up as a specialty. Again, tyrannosaurs were also doing that. (laughs) But these are two sort of recurring themes Mm -hmm. in predator evolution. These are useful things if you're wanting to hunt or make the best use of a carcass. They're both good adaptations for those, for those, they're both good adaptations for those kinds of lifestyles. Now, what may surprise some people, though, is that of these two lineages, the dog-like hyenas are the ones that were more successful early on. Hmm. they were the hyenas as the hyenid group started really taking over and and spreading out. Interesting. So as we move forward in our hyena timeline, we start to see, starting roughly around 15 million years ago, hyenas just diversify, going from a few known species to a dozen, couple dozen, and peaking around... 8 to 7 million years ago with 24 known species at one time around the world. So this is mid to late Miocene Mm -hmm. and just hyenas are having a heyday. And that's the pattern we see with the dog-like. They also peak around that same time with 20 of those species being dog-like hyenas and becoming very successful early on in hyena history. Interesting. Well, that's interesting because if I remember correctly from episode 94, this is also a time period where we see actual dogs, canids, Mm -hmm. doing pretty well. Absolutely. And that's one of the key things. Canids are indeed doing well over in the Americas, in North America, Uh. while the hyenas are hanging out in Eurasia and Africa. So they're hanging out on one side of the pond and dogs are hanging out on the other, which means, yes, these dog-like hyenas are not really competing as much with the dog-like dogs. Gotcha. One of the early members of this group is Ictotherium viverinum, which is a middle Miocene, which shows up in the middle Miocene and lasts until the early Pliocene, so 12 to 5 million years. Still looked a bit more like civets than modern hyenas, but described as being a bit more similar to a jackal. So we're getting a little more dog-like with this one and was very successful. So already early on these groups were doing very well. 
it was noted in one of the sources that in certain Miocene-aged fossil sites, remains of ichthytherium and other dog-like hyenas were more numerous than all the other carnivorous uh, taxa combined. So this was a hyena-dominated ecosystem. Like, hyenas were doing really well, and they were not doing what we think of as hyena stuff. Yeah, so so sort of like how uh, big cats are all over the place in Africa today. Mm-hmm. At this point, it was, yeah, different types of hyenas were all over the place. Absolutely. And ichthytherium has even been speculated to be slightly omnivorous, maybe eating plants and small animals. So it wasn't a hyper-carnivore, necessarily. But one of the most notable of these dog-like hyenas is the one that made it into North America. Ooh. The one group, Chasma porthides, which is the dog-like hyena you will typically find when you search for dog-like hyenas. Uh, Now, they were not just famous because they came into North America. They were found throughout Eurasia, into Africa... But they're the only one that made it into North America. Right. Much like how we've discussed in the past that we had American cheetahs Mm -hmm. and American lions. These were the American hyenas. Yes. The oldest members of this group go back 5 million years. And they last up until the mid-Pleistocene. So they were successful widespread group for a while. So they were here uh, several million years and into the Ice Age. So mm-hmm. hanging out with all the, the famous Ice Age creatures. Absolutely. Now, when they first arrived in North America in the Pliocene, they actually would have not been interacting with what we think as the classic North American fauna. Uh, a lot of the predators were not here yet. Lions and wolves wouldn't have been competition for them yet. Mm-hmm. And so they may have come into North America when there was not a lot of... When there was more open niches for them to occupy as predators, you know, or at least less direct competitors. They are sometimes called the running hyena because they're structured typically compared to a wolf. Mm -hmm. I even saw one thing that said a very cheetah-like hyena. Like, ooh, interesting. They are made for running. Their body is adapted, longer legs, a much less sloped back, so they're not going to have that weird loping, galloping, limping run that... Our hyenas today have these are hyenas that could book it, but also not eating like our hyenas. Studies on their teeth show that they were more sharp edged, and studies of the premolars suggested a more hyper carnivorous than durophagous, tough fooded diet. So these may not have been big bone crunchers. Interesting. Uh, even though I saw many a recent study treating them that way, there is evidence that they were not b- crunching bone. Maybe not even a lot. Like, that may have not been a big part of their diet in general. Hmm. They range through a bunch of habitats, like, up into the Arctic as well. Like, into the into the Yukon. There are members of this group. And so they were very successful, but there was one group that they very likely were competing with, which were the Barophagines. Right. The bone-crushing dogs. So we've got the dog-like hyenas, yep. and the barophagines are the hyena-like dogs. So Borophagus is the, the famous of the barophagines. These are canids, true dogs, like true members of the dog group, that were found in North America from Oligocene to Pliocene, 36 to 2.5 million years. So they were around for a while, and were doing the job that we think of hyenas doing in Africa today. They were eating bone, making similar hyena-like poop. Yep. Like, these were doing that bone-crushing predator 
job out in, here in North America, and therefore would have overlapped with Chasmoporthides for about 3 million years of their shared time on the planet. So there would have very likely been direct competition. I've seen it suggested that our hyenas may have been more northernly, with the Barophagines being more southernly. Right. And that may have been how they coexisted right. in, in North America. In North America, because mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, the dogs didn't make it down to South America until much later. Yes. Uh, and episode 43, the Great American Biotic Interchange, These were this was North American stuff. Yes, and the Barophagines never left the Americas to go over to Eurasia. Right. So Chasmoporthides was doing fine over in Eurasia and Africa. It was just here in North America where they would have been butting heads with these bone right. crunchy dogs. And then they saw what they were doing and went, this looks great. I got to go tell the other guys. And then they went all the way back to Africa. This brings up a really interesting point, And that is that as, as much as our modern day groups of animals tend to be differentiated and tend to sort of specialize in different things, it's always important to, to be reminded that different strategies have come and gone in different groups. It's not just that Hyenas do a thing, cats do a thing, dogs do a thing. Mm-hmm. There are trends, but yeah, there have been bone-crushing dogs. There have been running, chasing hyenas. Yes. We've got cats today that, while most cats are famously solitary, we have some social ones. While most cats are ambush hunters, we have a species that is one of the best running animals ever mm-hmm. that is a cat. These are strategies that have been tried and tested by multiple groups over time. Yeah, and often with great success. Yeah, it's not just like, oh, I dabbled. Like, oh, a cheetah that one time. And just because we don't have them today doesn't mean they weren't a good idea. That they didn't survive well during their time. You know, Barophagines were around for over 20 million years. Yeah, we relatively recently lost those. Yes. It's only weird now the idea of hyena-like dogs. Now, these running hyenas went extinct before the end Pleistocene. And so there's some mystery as to what exactly, why did they go extinct? Right. If they had gone extinct at the end of the Pleistocene, we could easily group them in with everything we talked about in episode 25. Mm-hmm. There was a extinction of large animals yep. worldwide at the end of the Pleistocene. But this was earlier than mm-hmm. that. And what it may be is that this is around the same time that we see the arrival of gray wolves in North America and a success of dire wolves and that that may have just been too much competition for running hyenas, Mm. these running canids. Yeah. At at that point, we also would have had American cheetahs. Yeah. So it, (laughs) it may have just been that they got pushed out of their niche. And in general, around seven to five million years ago, we start to see dog like hyenas decline in general, like overall. As a group, they start becoming less diverse. Their numbers start, their numbers and ranges start dwindling. And this is also connected to the fact that during this time, there is a climatic change. So that Mm -hmm. also, that always shakes things up. But most people don't say that, don't think that that's the cause. Another thing that happens is canids make it into Eurasia. Yeah. Dogs show up. And now the the hyena haven (laughs) is invaded by these also running predators. And for the most part, dog-like hyenas had died out about a million and a half years ago. All right. So by the time the Ice Age has really set in, we're seeing the, the last, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the remnants, the vestiges of the dog hyenas. Yes. 
minus the lineage that leads all the way up to the Ardwolf, which is the only remaining member of this half of hyenas. <gasps> the Ardwolf <laughs> is a dog hyena? Yep. <laughs> what a... What a twist. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> That's awesome. I, you know, I had just assumed when you said the hyena like hyena, which it's funny because you did the very clever, uh, <laughs> the misdirection thing where early on you said the way you were describing the hyena like hyenas made me suspicious. You yes. were like, yeah, these are very similar to our modern hyenas. And I was like, <laughs> oh, is this going to be like a bird hipped dinosaurs yep, yep, thing yep. where it's going to be a flip? And then. You went on continuing talking and I forgot. And then we came back and it, it turns out the Ardwolf showed up on the wrong side of the hyena family tree. Yeah, it's the remaining member of this very successful half of hyenas. That's awesome. So we do still have one left and it's super weird. And it, Yeah, and it's the, the one that survived because it did something completely different. And indeed, yeah, I, I saw it noted that the fact that they're insectivorous might have been their saving grace because then they faced no competition to all the not insectivorous dogs yeah. coming over. All the dogs came over and they were like, hey, 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 we're going to do what these hyenas do, but do it better. You're going extinct. You're going extinct. And then they walked up to the Ardwolf and went, what? ew, what are you doing? <laughs> and then the Ardwolf said, slimy yet satisfied. <laughs> and they all walked away. See, I brought it back around to that Lion King reference. <laughs> all hyenas come back to Lion King. <laughs> so now this leaves us to discuss the bone crushing hyenas. Yeah. Which are most of the hyenas we have left today. This is the lineage that leads to the striped, the spotted, and the brown. But it got a much slower start. They were not successful right out the gate like the dog hyenas were. They diversified more slowly. While the dog hyenas got their success around 20 million years ago, we started seeing them diversifying. Bone crushers don't really start to pipe up until about 10, 10 okay. million years ago. Late Miocene. Yeah, so... Eh, Mid-late Miocene. They are... They're, it's really, yeah, when we get into the Miocene that we start seeing bone crushers come in, and then they steadily increase until the Pleistocene, where then we do see a drop-off because of the reasons you'd expect. It gets cold, and then everything goes extinct at the end. Yes. And then everyone died. One of the patterns we see with this slow, steady increase that they consistently, progressively replace the dog hyenas. That as the dog hyenas go down, the bone crushers are going up okay. in diversity. So it seems that they basically kind of changing of the guard Yeah, are one six, once successful dog hyenas start to diminish starting about 7 million years ago. And a little before that, the bone crushers step in and basically start taking their place. And the metrics show that almost perfectly. It's kind of crazy. Hmm. And we see their rise coincide with the decline of another group called the Percrocutidae, which is a very hyena-like other group of feliform, which even though it has crocuta in the name... It, these aren't hyenas. These right. are other feliform carnivorans. That reminded the paleontologists who described them of hyenas. They are very hyena-like. This group was highly successful, found throughout Asia, Africa, into Europe. They're known from the Middle Miocene to Late Pliocene. Earliest members already had large premolars, seemingly very hyena-like. But then when you get to later members, especially the group Dino Crocuta, which is a cool name, they had really impressive premolars, 
bites that seem to be made for bone crushing. Dinocrocruta gigantea is the largest species of this group, and when we say largest, we mean an animal that can be up to six feet long, two meters, and four feet tall at the shoulder. So not quite a meter and a half tall. Yeah. And weighing around 200 kilograms, 440 pounds. Wow. With evidence from smaller specimens giving estimates potential sizes for the largest members of 300 kilograms or 660 pounds. Wow. So a tiger-sized hyena yes. animal. These were animals getting up to massive carnivorous sizes cool. that really just look very hyena-like. They, and they are related to hyenas, so this is not something completely different. Though it is distinct, it's often grouped as either a sister taxa or immediate outgroup to hyenidae. Okay. So it is not super crazy that they are so similar. Some research even seems to think that they would have been very spotted hyena-like being active predators that are good at bone crushing. Okay. They seem to be built to hunt. But did they have pseudopenises? I didn't find any evidence of that fossilized. That was actually one of the questions Lucas asked me when I told him what I was researching, is mm-hmm. if we can have any evidence of when pseudopenises showed up. And as far as I could find, no. Yeah. I don't <laughs> know. I don't think this came up in the baculum episode, episode 53. Mm-hmm. I don't know what hyena bacula look like. Or even if they have bacula i didn't it didn't get mentioned in any of the sources i looked up no no because i would wonder a brief divergence into episode 53 the baculum is the penis bone which Mm -hmm. is found in a number of mammalian groups female as of groups that have bacula have a clitoris bone the bobellum and i don't know if that would also change yeah but off the top of my head i don't remember if hyenas because I, I, cats don't have a yeah. prominent baculum, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I didn't see it mentioned anywhere, so I, I would err toward maybe not. Yeah, because in all the things I didn't find it mentioned, but I also did not search that because I didn't think to. Someday, someday, somebody will find, yeah, uh, fossilized hyena pseudopenises. Though, and we'll get into this. Probably not super ancestral, because it seems that a lot of that super social behavior in spotted hyenas is very recent. Okay. So it doesn't seem like that's a long-standing thing in this group. All right, that makes sense. Now, very briefly, I want to diverge back on course and then slightly off course again. Sure. Because we talked about Dino Crocuta, which is not a hyena, but very hyena-like and seems to be partially what the bone-crushing hyenas were stepping in the shoes of as they declined. Sure. But these are not the only hyena-esque or hyena-reminiscent animals that were on the planet around this time. There are other groups that seem like they were doing a similar thing or reminded the scientists who named them of hyenas. Right. Probably the most famous of these that you're thinking of right now is hyenodon. Which, which means hyena tooth. Yes, the hyenodonta. These were early Paleocene African predators. Lasting all the way up until late Miocene. Oh, okay. So these these started way early, but mm-hmm. lasted quite a while. So they were around, they were still on the planet during this time, and their teeth look very hyena-esque. But when I actually went to look it up, uh, what I found is that it seems they're more adapted for shearing, not crushing. Okay. And that So more cat-like 
ish in that respect. Yeah, and they actually have like a series of very carnasial like teeth in a row. Sometimes three in a in sequence, but lacked post carnasial crushing teeth. I repeat. Yep. That's actually a feature that I found. Like all creodonts, they lack the crushing premolars. Yeah, that 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 is a cat thing. Mm-hmm. In fact, we see that in cats today that they real a lot of them have gotten rid of crushing molars yeah. and it's just all knives. So, even though they're called hyena toothed, nope. Yeah. And not if they're <laughs> creodonts, that's a whole different group. Yeah, so not even remotely related, just r- reminiscent. But then you also have the boar hyena. The boar hyena day. The least exciting hyenas. (laughs) They just, it's always bridge facts at the parties. (laughs) Let me tell you a story about a bridge. These are from the Eocene to Miocene of South America. These are sporacidontids. So not true marsupials, but very marsupial-esque. So even even less close. Yep. Uh, Very likely had pouches, but weren't marsupials, as we call them. True marsupials. Low-slung, heavy-built bodies, predatory. These were what filled the big predatory mammal role in South America. We talked about them when we talked about South America. And they do seem to have crushing teeth with powerful bites and may very well have been doing bone crushing. You'll see them referenced as being the South America's answer for hyenas, though I couldn't actually find any research on them crushing bones. Like... Evidence of their dropping, like, copper lights showing crushed bones or something. That may be out there. I may have missed it. If I did, someone tell me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we do the boar hyena episode. So, yeah, there seems to be a lot of hyena-esque or reminiscent groups, but n- not necessarily any of them doing what hyenas were doing, except for the barophagines, which were definitely right living like what we think of hyenas living like. Like I was saying before, it's funny because large predators on this planet have only really come in so many diverse Mm -hmm. forms, you know, especially within mammals, they keep hitting on the same concepts, the same body plans, the same approaches, good ways to be alive. When it works, it works. Some of them are weird. Some of them eat termites, (laughs) but yeah, it's not at all surprising that when we looked at uh, uh, the cats episode and the dogs episode, there have been a bunch of cat like things that weren't cats and there have been a bunch of dog-like things that weren't dogs so yeah there have been a bunch of sort of hyena-like things that weren't hyenas but back to hyenas by about five million years ago the bone crushers had become the dominant group in eurasia way to go bone crushers they were the hyenas and they were doing well but as mentioned, they never made it in North America, probably because of the barophagines. Mm-hmm. Because while the running hyenas were not really doing the bone crushing maybe as much, bone crushers would have been in direct competition. So they, they stayed on their sides of the pond. And we get a group known as Paki Crocuda. Crocuda is very popular <laughs> as a term. The hyena. That, yep. That's the hyena. Paki Crocuda. Thick hyena. These are... The big hyenas, the big bone crushers. Yep. They appeared late Miocene, oldest species showing up in Africa. So these actually, a lot of the bone crushers that we think of do have African origins, even if hyena may or may not, according to what I found. But they're found throughout Africa and Eurasia. These are the largest hyenas that we've ever known. These are big hyenas. Pachycorcuda revirostris is the largest known and most well-researched, so it's usually the one that'll pop up when you search this group. 
sometimes called the giant short-faced hyena. Oh, <laughs> man. You don't call something giant short-faced. You don't mess around with that title. Nope. This hyena stood about three feet tall, 100 centimeters, so about a meter, at the shoulder, and is estimated to have, on average, raid just over 100 kilograms, or 240 pounds. Which may not seem huge, since we just talked about Dino Krakuta, which was a monster. Yes. <laughs> but that wasn't a hyena. That doesn't count. It doesn't get to be in the ranking. It yep. does not get a blue ribbon for being the biggest hyena. This is, a, in, in a group that is known for being beefy, mm-hmm. this is the beefy of the beef. The hyenas. Yeah, I mean, this is a hyena that outweighs either of us. Like, yeah, this is bigger than your average adult human. This is a, a hefty hyena. This is a hyena on the weight class of a lion. Yeah. So these were the, I've seen them called mega scavengers. Cool. Ah. They are typically portrayed as being preferentially scavengers, mm-hmm. specialized bone crunchers. And one thing said... The best bone cracking carnivore that ever existed. Like, Interesting. Th- that was what it said. But yeah, uh, carnivorin, uh, I would give them. Yeah, so I was gonna say. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I think Tyrannosaurus uh, would like to have a word. Or has any, a bone to crack with you? Or any croc? Or any croc? <laughs> yeah, but no mammals. Yes, sure, you can have that. Like this is super specialized. <laughs> the bone Tasmanian cruncher. devil would like a word. <laughs> Big mandibles, robust, powerful, highly developed premolars, and big, powerful limbs and shortened distal bones. So the the ends of their limbs were a bit shorter. Mm. These don't seem like they were runners. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a running trait. These sound like powerful animals that could go to a carcass and actually take it apart and carry it. That's something that's different about these than what we think of as our today bone crackers. They didn't go to the carcass engine settle down there they would collect bones at a den and we know this because we find their collections of bones in the fossil record yeah this is common uh especially in ice age predators Mm -hmm. to find yeah often cave sites or similar things where predators were hanging out to eat yep and so this seems like an animal that was powerful enough to take apart a carcass carry a chunk of it without dragging it and truck it back to their den where then they could eat at leisure yeah, and this is a time period where you would have plenty of big carcasses around. Yes. They'd be feeding on the carcasses of lots of big herbivores. And according to looking at which bones are found intact and broken in their habitats, we could figure out which bones they preferred. Because oh. the bones that aren't crunched are the ones they're not eating often. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which I love. It's like, oh, that's in one piece. They didn't want it. They tend to focus on femurs and tibia and humerus. The big meaty marrow bones. I also I love that the femur is famously at least in humans. Yes. I don't know how, how this varies. Famously, the strongest bone mm-hmm. in the body. And yeah, these guys are. Yeah, that's that's the one we want. I saw one, and I I don't know that there's been research on this, so don't take this as like definitive. We've done, but I saw one thing that said. It's been either proposed or there has been a measurement that I, I just didn't find the research for that they would be able to crack elephant bones. Yeah. This is a hyena that would look at an elephant carcass and be like, mm, marrow inside an elephant femur. Yeah, I can take it. Yeah. Crunch. Cool. We see these start to go extinct, though, in the middle Pleistocene, potentially due to a decline in the large herbivores that they're scavenging during the late Ice Age. 
So it may be that their food source, there were not enough big carcasses, like like the issue with condors, mm-hmm. not having enough big dead things to eat. And it seems they were replaced by Crocuda. Modern hyenas. The modern spotted hyenas, or their group, kind of came in as the specialized bone crunchers. And they said, we can take down an elephant too. It's just going to take 90 of us. Yes. <laughs> what do you do when you don't weigh as much as a lion? Be more than the lion. Form the mega crocuda. <laughs> and I'll form the head. <laughs> and I'll form the carnassials. So we see modern spot hyenas come in and take over as that specialized group. So our modern bone crunchers start to become the specialized scavengers and hunters. And hyenas are doing pretty well and then take a big old dip at the end of the Pleistocene. Just like everybody else. And then we're basically left with the four we have today. Which isn't too bad. Which isn't too bad. But it really goes to show that, like you were mentioning with the Brofjins, that we only recently lost them. Hyenas only really got to be the way they are very recently. Yeah. Like the the numbers and distribution that they are. And even still, spotted hyenas used to range up into Eurasia. I was wondering uh, this about when you were giving the ranges of modern hyenas. Mm-hmm. I was wondering how much those ranges have changed. Drastically. Yeah. Eurasia used to have cave hyenas. Mm-hmm. Crocuda crocuda spalea, which is the Ice Age spotted hyena or cave hyena, which ranged throughout Eurasia from the Iberian Peninsula up to eastern Siberia. Oh. Hugely successful. Yeah. And distinct. It was slightly different than the spotted hyena we know, which was in Africa and in its current range. And though very similar, they do seem to be a bit different. The cave hyenas seem to be a bit more scavengers. And according to scans of their brain case, not social like spotted hyenas. Huh. They don't show the same expanded frontal cortex that is characteristic of highly social animals because if you're going to be social that takes brain power Mm -hmm. to keep track of the hierarchy like hyenas are constantly jockeying for positions you need to remember who's above you who's below you who's on your level who you think you can take on who's in charge who's not in charge who's new you also need to keep track of what all these sounds and smells mean and how to make those sounds and smells Mm -hmm. so there is a notable difference in the structure of the brain of today's spotted hyena because of that highly gregarious social behavior cool which is what makes them such good team workers and problem solvers and their intelligence so different from the other hyenas it doesn't seem cave hyenas were doing that and that as i mentioned spotted hyenas did it relatively recently and by recently i mean like sixty thousand years ago so like that is a very new feature it seems and as a last note the, the remaining question is, why don't we have hyenas in Eurasia now? And it's probably for the similar reason that the dog-like hyenas aren't up there anymore. And it's that with a climate shift, dogs, but also humans, started moving into territories. And the habitat started to shift to be more commonly favorable to dogs and humans than to hyenas. Now, whether or not they were pushed out or replaced by dogs or whether or not dogs stepped into their place Mm -hmm. is more debatable, but we don't have them up there anymore. We see 
European Eurasian hyenas die out around 12,000 years ago. With the rise of grasslands, it shifted things in more favor with the wolves. Yeah, just missed them. Just missed them. Sorry, Europeans. But for the most part, that about brings us to the modern situation and the hyenas, the four hyenas we have today. What a great example of that trend we keep talking about of how the modern diversity is not necessarily representative of past diversity. Here's a group that at one point in their past was dominated by wolf-like creatures all over the old world. Mm-hmm. And today they're all in Africa. 75% of them are dedicated bone crackers and the remaining 25% eat termites. Yep. <laughs> so it's the history is fast and weird and some of the modern members are just weird compared to that history. So hyenas. There's a ton more that could be said. There's also a ton more we're still learning. A couple of these groups, the the striped and brown hyena, are not nearly as heavily studied as the spotted. So there's a lot more that we're still discovering day to day about them and how they live and survive. So still a lot more to unlock. And there's still major attempts to try to overturn the public perception of hyenas to open people's eyes to the fact that they are dynamic, interesting animals and not just gross. Yeah. We need a Disney movie starring hyenas yes. as the protagonists. You know who the bad guys would be? Lions. 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 It needs to be lions. Yeah, they would. Yep. I mean, would for accuracy. Lion King one-third can be mm. the backstory. <laughs> well, though we are at the end of our discussion, we do have one thing left. We do. To the episode, which is our patron question. That's true. One of the benefits that our patrons get is that they can ask us questions for us to answer on the podcast at a certain level. And today's question comes from Zabby, which is fortuitous because this question is about hyenas. And I know from keeping track of our social media that Zabby was very excited for us to eventually someday do a hyenas episode. <laughs> so hopefully Zabby is very happy with this development. Zabby asks, during the last ice age, why were wolves domesticated by humans, whereas other pack hunting predators, such as hyenas, did not get domesticated? What set wolves apart? A very good question. And I actually looked into this before even finding this patron question. I was <laughs> just doing research. I had the same thought of, have we ever, has any, has there ever been like an attempt or like partial domestication or anything? And not really. Yeah, we talked about domestic. So episode 27 was mm -hmm. about domestication. And I don't remember hyena. We talked about why certain groups get domesticated over others. But I don't remember hyenas coming up. No. And it's a very good question because everything about spotted hyenas seems ideal for domestication. They're social. There's a sense of hierarchy mm -hmm. that's very organized. They are intelligent, you know, easy to learn new behaviors yeah, and they to have adjust. A very generalized diet. Yep. So they're easy to feed. They would have been easy to feed. They would have been able to survive. They have survived in variety of habitats. So it's not like... Ooh, if it drops below freezing, you're going to lose your height. Nope. They lived all the way up into Siberia. Mm -hmm. So should have been good for that. They're also predatory, which would have been useful for hunting. like yep. Just like wolves. Just like wolves. So yeah, why not hyenas? And I didn't find anything that gave a reason why. Though there are some examples. Evidently, there are at least accounts of 
Egyptians taming striped hyenas. Okay. And I've seen a number of sources saying that hyenas are very tameable, though I didn't find, like, research on it. It was, I guess, more accounts of people who have worked with hyenas. Right. Quinn et al., 1997 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So it seems that you can work with a hyena. I saw one thing that was, and this was what told me, it's like, all right, this isn't a scientific paper. It's someone who's done this. But it was like, if you tame a hyena from a young age, it will be as as docile as a domesticated dog. So, like, they are evidently, anecdotally, very tameable. Interesting. It, it accounts of the Egyptians doing it. Evidently, people have done it since then. People have also worked with hyenas. You'll find lots of people who are handlers with hyenas and will handle the hyenas. You know, be in with the hyenas and be very social, playing with them. Like you would see someone interacting with wolves that they're caring for or something. Like, they are very sociable with people, evidently, if given the right circumstance. So I don't have a reason for definitely why not. If I were to presume a couple of key things, depends on how far back that bad reputation mentality. Like, if they're used to being seen around death, carcasses, Mm -hmm. that might be enough for people to be like, "Mm mm-mm. Evil, evil animals. Right. Don't don't associate. There's lots of old stories of hyenas throughout Africa and throughout uh, uh, the other places that they've been found of them being evil creatures, of them roaming graveyards and defiling graves, of them being mystical, like embodiment of witches and other evil magic users. Like throughout human history, they have been literally vified, demified. So it could be that that aversion goes back to ancient people as well. Or it could be that only the spotted hyena is social. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it may not have been social at the right timing, in the right place, and in the right situation. That's a fairly recent thing. So maybe it just didn't sync up with this one group instead of yeah all hyenas being that way. My guess, thinking back to episode 27 and the list of things you need uh, to be a good domesticated animal, uh, taming is great because Mm -hmm. that means you can work well with a single hyena, but you also need to be able to breed. Yes. And that's the first thing that comes to my mind is that you said earlier that spotted hyenas, which are the social ones, mating is difficult. Yes. They often have trouble giving birth. The female sounds like can be very picky. Oh, yeah. I imagine it would be you know, one of the essential steps in domestication is selectively breeding, which means at some point you have to put a male and a female in a room of your choosing mm-hmm. and say, you make babies now. And it sounds like that might be a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, If the female disagrees with you <laughs> about yeah. your selection of male, then you don't get babies. Yeah. And if it's a female who's never given birth before mm-hmm. and you have birth complications. It might be that reproduction is, yeah. you know, that's why uh, often uh, one of the reasons cited for why, for example, elephants are hard to domesticate is yeah, you can tame an elephant aside from them being enormous and dangerous. Yes. But if it takes two years to get a single baby, that's not a lot of opportunity to mess with breeding in the long term. <laughs> well, it means your it means your breeding project is going to outlive you as an individual and your kids. Possibly and your... <laughs> possibly your city. Yeah, like by the time you've made progress, it's a whole different group of people. So it could just be that they're not 
uh, consistent enough in their domestication. Yeah. So yeah, it's an interesting question. It's hard to know for sure. Uh, and my first guess was going to be that they're real mean, but your taming yeah. thing, uh, that they were like zebras. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That but they were just ill-tempered and hard to get along. No, I found a number of videos of people working with spotted hyenas and just like calling them over, giving them scritches and tr- <laughs> just they work with these animals. So yeah, it's, it is kind of baffling and. Or maybe they're just like cats and they're just, they just don't take well to that mm-hmm. kind of interaction. Yeah. I had the exact same thought while taking notes and doing research and was very sad when it's like, no, not really. It's like, but, but I want. But I want <laughs> a pet hyena. That spotted hyenas are so cool. <laughs> and they're, I think they're actually very cute and pretty. No, and they're like, super cool animals. I want, I want a I, domestic hyena. I want to scritch a hyena. Yeah. Yeah. PSA for all our listeners. Don't. Don't scritch a hyena. Scritch a hyena. Uh, evidently, though, there's also an issue like uh, the one thing that talked about taming striped hyenas is that they use smells very heavily for communication and that they just always mm. smell. That they are just, oh, yeah. they're smelly animals. Doesn't matter if you bathe them, they smell bad. They smell smelly, at least. Like mustelids. Yeah, they just smell. That's what they do. Hmm. And so maybe it's just they're stinky. <laughs> well, thanks for that question, Zabby. And yeah. thanks for the request. And thanks to everyone for the request. Absolutely. Thanks to all our patrons. Thanks to all of our listeners. This is going to wrap things up. So if you have questions or comments, send them to us in the usual ways. You can find us on all the social medias. Email us. You can find us on YouTube and comment there. All that good stuff. So... If you have, if you want to hear more about these topics, we're always taking requests. And though we haven't done it yet this year, we do do spin-off things mm-hmm. aside from our main episodes. And like we said at the top, there is a movie coming out, so there should be some sort of movie-related spin-off coming up soon. And then there will be more later in the year. Absolutely. Check out the blog post for links and images for those of you who want to dive deeper into the subject. Mm -hmm. I've learned to appreciate hyenas a whole bunch, and I hope that our listeners did too. Yes. And with that, we can sign out. We'll see you in a fortnight. For episode 110, whatever that might be. 110. That's it. I've said all the things I have to say about hyenas. Well, as, as Ed from The Lion King would say... (laughs) He doesn't talk. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.